Come on, that was actually horrible. Like, I'm not just going to walk away and leave that alone. Like, you guys need to do better than that. Come on. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, man. All right. Yeah, I preach better when the applause is better at the beginning, so it's a good thing that you did that. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so really good uh, to be with you, and it's just been, uh, you know, so fun, and I, I, I'm thankful for the opportunity, Jer, and just appreciated all the leaders that I've encountered here, just servant-hearted leaders. That's what I see and feel and sense around here, which is just amazing, and I know God will do amazing things through you as a result of that, and... Um, you know, before, before I go forward, I want to rep Masters MCS. Come on, give it up for Masters MCS. We got a little bit of repping going on there. Some of you actually need to consider right now that that's where God's calling you to go and get your Bible college training and, and just be ready. And maybe you think you're too young to think about that. You're not too young to think about that, that God has a call on your life. And maybe some of you need to, need to explore that even, even though you're young and just really believe that um, MCS is not just about, about information, it's about transformation and formation, and uh, just really want to encourage you to think about that. I also, before I talk about what um, God put on my heart, I want to just confirm, Jer, what, what you were saying there at the end, because I feel like the Lord was speaking something similar to me uh, at the, at the uh, end of the worship there, and in the midst of difficulty, difficult time that we find ourselves in, whether it's personally or I was thinking even as the church, like maybe you, you look at the church and the, the struggle of the church, that lots of churches are plateaued or declining or not, not seeing advancement, and we struggle, and it's difficult for us sometimes to perceive how God is going to do something significant and great in the midst of the difficulty that we find ourselves in. And you've probably experienced that personally, that in the midst of a hard time, it's hard to believe or see how God's going to do something positive in the midst of the negative and difficult that you find yourself in. And here's what I wanted to encourage you to think about. Sometimes we've got to praise God now for the thing that was happening then. So what I mean is, did you ever realize that, that what you were crying about back then, you're thanking God for now? Like maybe when the breakup happened, you were crying, but now you're so thankful that the breakup happened because God's opened a new door and a new relationship. Maybe when you lost your job, you were crying, and then you're thanking God now because he's provided a new opportunity. Maybe you were, you were crying when you moved and you had to move and leave all your friends, but then God's created new friends and new opportunities for you. Sometimes you got to thank God now for what you were crying about then. How many know what I'm talking about? So then what you got to do is use the faith, that faith from that, to thank God now what you're believing him to do then. Right? You thank God now for what was happening that you were crying about it, you didn't see it, and God's like, just be patient, I got something for you that you don't realize, and it's so good for you, but you gotta go through this difficult time, and so we thank God now in advance for what he's gonna do then. And I believe that that is the place of faith for us as we look at the church today. And so many people look at the church and you hear all the negative stuff and whatever. I, I just want to inspire us to believe and dream. And maybe that's true in your context, but I believe that God is at work. I believe that God is at work by his spirit. I believe that God is working you. And I want us to just kind of dream a little and maybe correct our vision to see the good things that God is going to do in the future as we trust him. Can I hear a good loud amen to that? Amen. amen. Okay. So 
We're going to look at this verse. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I believe that this verse is true for everybody at all times. I think this is true, that God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. This is true. But some people might look at that and say, okay, then how come we aren't seeing the incredible, immeasurable, above we can ask or imagine thing happening? I think there's probably lots of reasons for that. But I've been wondering lately if one of the reasons why we're not seeing the immeasurable, incredible, miraculous stuff happening more often is because God is actually already giving us beyond what we imagine. We're just not imagining very much. We're not asking very much. We're not dreaming very much. Maybe what God is giving us is according to our faith. I started preaching, didn't I? Maybe that's part of what's going on. And here's what I've learned in my ministry. That God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, but he won't do for us what he invites us to do. God will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He will do the supernatural. He will do the miraculous. He will transform lives and save people because you and I can't do that. He will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, but he won't do for us what he invites us to do. And by his wisdom, he calls us to partner with him in his work and in his ministry. And so we need to dream and believe, and I think we need some vision correction to be able to see accurately the things that God wants to do and the things that he's already doing to partner with his work, to see the immeasurably above all we can ask or imagine. There's a guy named Dr. Evan Kane. He was a chief surgeon at uh, Summit Hospital in New York, and he had been a, a surgeon for 37 years, and over the course of his career, he began to question the wisdom of using general anesthetic for every surgery. And he thought that local anesthetic would be better for some surgeries, and he thought the patient would recover faster and so on. But he had one problem. No one wanted to go under the knife while they only had a local anesthetic. Nobody wanted to be the first person to do it. They were all afraid of what would happen and the pain that they would feel. So he searched and searched, and he couldn't find anybody to believe him. Finally, he found a willing participant. And so he, uh, he prepped the patient, brought them in the OR, and what helped was it was a routine procedure. He had performed uh, 4,000 appendectomies up until that point in time. And so it was like routine for him. And so patients prepped, brought in, the local anesthetic was carefully administered, and then he proceeded, Dr. Kane proceeded in the way that he had 4,000 times before. He made an incision in the abdomen, he entered the body cavity, he tied off the blood vessels, he found the appendix, he excised it, he removed it from his body, and then sewed it up. And to his credit, Dr. Kane was right, that the patient recovered way faster and way better, that was up and around the next day, which was amazing, because this was 1921. And at that time, Patients who had an appendectomy, it took them six to eight days to recover. This patient was up and around the next day. It was a modern medical breakthrough. But what was even more noteworthy than that is that the doctor and the patient were the same person. Dr. Kane operated on himself. 
And in a sense, that's what we need to do. We need to do personal vision correction surgery because we don't see ourselves accurately often, we don't see the church accurately, and we don't see the possibilities of what God can do and what God is going to do. So I wanna challenge us to change our vision and to dream and believe for what God can do in our midst. I wanna suggest that one of the primary things that we need to do that in in our ministries is to move from our ABCs to our DEFs. Um, when I, I only started wearing glasses about five years ago, and I didn't think I needed glasses before I got them. I actually thought I could see just fine. And I didn't realize, so I had never been. So I finally went to the optometrist and they make you read letters off of this chart, right? And they say, you know, you read what you can and then what you can't. They say, okay, and they put these lenses in front of your eyes to see if you can see more clearly. Now, before I went there, I didn't realize that I had blurry vision. I thought I could see just fine. And it only became clear to me when, when, I, when I speak, I often just look at, just like you guys see the same thing you see here, I see back there, and I read off the same thing, and that's kind of how I do it in our worship center as well. But what I realized was happening, I was having to get like right to the edge of the stage, and I was like squinting, and I was having to make the font really big, and everything was, and I thought it was like the machine wasn't focused properly, I was blaming everybody else, like, you didn't make the graphics proper, you didn't fix that or whatever. It was me. I was the problem. I couldn't see clearly, and it wasn't until I went there and I read that chart, I was like, oh, man. And then I put, my, I put glasses on, and, like, the world was HD. Like, I didn't realize if you, like, if you don't wear glasses and all of a sudden you have to get them. I, like, I, I used to think, like, gra there's individual blades of grass. Did you know that? Like, I just thought it was like the green carpet, you know what I mean? But when I put them on, I could see all that. It was amazing how much it changed. And so many of us, it's the same thing. We don't see clearly, but we think we do. We think we see our situation clearly. That's why we're so arrogant when we pray that we tell God what he should do. We think we see clearly. We think we see the church clearly. We think we see everything... No, we need vision correction. We need to see more clearly. And so here's, here's one of the challenges to us as leaders. I think so often we focus on ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. And we need to move to our DEFs, discipleship, evangelism, faithfulness. And we've got to do x-rays. We've got to take a good look at our calendar and our lives. And we've got to zero in. We can say, what is my focus? Is my focus attendance, buildings, and cash? You'd be surprised how many churches focus on getting crowds there to get attendance and how much of a church's budget goes to the building and how much cash they're trying to raise just to keep things floating. And so we end up focused so much on that instead of focusing our attention on discipleship and evangelism, reaching those who need the love and the grace of Jesus and being faithful to what God's called us to do. We need to shift from our ABCs to our DEFs. I think one of the primary ways to do that is through this principle that I learned the hard way. You steer where you stare. So my wife and I dated for five and a half years before we got married. And uh, we were high school sweethearts. And we've been married for 23 years already. And uh, yeah, come on, that's good stuff. My wife's amazing. And so 
we, when we were dating for five and a half years, when, by the time we were dating for two and a half years is when this story happened. And I, I was still getting butterflies every time I thought about her. And I, I still get butterflies when I did. And I, the reason, two reasons for that. Um, one is because we were, we were friends since we were 12 years old. And we had this, I like you, you like me, but we don't talk to each other kind of thing because we didn't have the courage to talk to each other at that point in time, you know. But, but we have been friends. And so anytime after we started dating that I knew I was going to go on a date with her, I was so excited. Like, because I knew it was going to be awesome. We were going to have fun. It was going to be amazing. We were going to laugh. And so I always got the butterflies every time I thought we we're going to go on a date. The other reason was because she was so incredibly beautiful, I couldn't believe that she was my girlfriend. And I played it cool on the outside, you know, like I just like, hey, babe, how's it going, you know? But on the inside, my inside voice was going, she's so pretty, you know? (laughs) And I was like, you know what I mean? And so I was just always so excited. But this one day, I was so much more excited because we were going on a date and my dad flipped me the keys to his new car. It was a 1992 Chrysler Daytona. That means nothing to most of you because most of you weren't even born in 1992. <laughs> but but it, was, it was a coupe. It was two-door. It was turquoise. It had a sunroof. Like, this thing was so cool. And my dad flipped me the keys, and I'm like, this is going to be the best night ever. So I go pick up Sherry, and we are having the time of our life. It is summertime. It is so good. We went out and had dinner. It's fantastic. We are cruising downtown Hamilton, Ontario. And I, it was so good, I was getting all the lights green. Like one after another, getting the lights green, baby. I mean, this is the best. And so we're cruising. We got the 80s music pumping, right? Windows down. I had a mullet back then. I was a hockey player. I had the wind blowing through my mullet. Like, I mean, it was just, it was the best, man. I got my girl. I got everything. And I'm getting the lights green, the lights green. I'm timing them, right? Like, just as I get there, I'm timing them. I'm going through, timing them, time, going until Lock Street. And we were literally driving into the sunset. And the sun was right behind the light. And I thought I saw it change, but it didn't change. And I drove in to the intersection on a red light. And somebody came flying, trying to get through the intersection to get their light. And they hit us right in the back of the car. I can still remember the sound. Like, I don't know if you've been in an accident like that, but it was so loud and so crazy and so startling. And we start spinning around in circles. And if you've never been in an accident like that, thank the Lord if you ever are in an accident like that, here's something I learned later. That it's this principle, you steer where you stare. And there's a guy named Gary Magwood. He is a national race car driving champion, and now he's a race car instructor. And here's what he said. It's virtually a vision exercise. It's not easy, but it works. When trouble arises, you must look where you want to go, and the rest will follow. And so it was a good thing that I was so enamored with her because when we started going like this, I ended up looking to make sure she was okay and it happened to make me steer in this direction and we narrowly missed a concrete telephone pole and it could have been fatal and it saved our life. I want to tell you something. In your ministry, in your life, you will steer where you stare. Whatever you stare at is the direction you are going to lead your life. 
And our world tells us, which we talked about in the first session, our world tells us to look at yourself to solve the problems. Look at yourself to change things. I'm going to tell you, Jesus says, look to me. Look to me, follow me, and I will lead you. I will care for you. I will guide you. I will help you get through the things that you find yourself in the middle of. We've got to continue to look to Jesus and his plan and do it in his way. Because if we stare at our way and we stare at attendance buildings and cash, we will steer in that direction and it won't build the church. Because we often think you build a great church, you're going to get disciples. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, make disciples and then gather together as the church. And we get the cause and effect mixed up all the time. And you steer where you stare. Now, when we say make disciples, I think Jesus meant like he did. Jesus didn't, when he said make disciples, he didn't mean a 10-week alpha program. And we use alpha, and alpha's great, but that's not discipleship. That's just the beginning. And so many people use that and go, yeah, we got alpha, they go through the 10 weeks, done. Not even close. When Jesus said make disciples, he meant like he did. It's ongoing. It's relationship. It's doing life together. And it takes time. And so here's one of the things I've been saying recently to challenge myself. I think modern ministry values doing big things fast and famously. Meaningful ministry is, is mostly doing overlooked things over a long period of time quietly. And I think we have the big show and the stage and the lights and all that stuff, and that's fun and that's great, and we need to gather together. And I'm not saying don't do this. I think this is meaningful and important and valuable, and we can encounter God and have our lives changed in settings like this, but this can't be what it's all about. It has to be about more than this. It has to be about faithfully engaging in people's lives and walking with them through lives and sharing their burdens and loving them. And when you do that, you will fulfill your purpose. And here's a, here's a powerful principle. When a purpose is fulfilled, a problem is solved. When the purpose of a light is fulfilled, the problem of darkness is solved. When the purpose of a car is fulfilled, the problem of transportation is solved. When the purpose of medicine is fulfilled, an illness is solved. When a purpose is fulfilled, a problem is solved. And when Jesus Christ came and fulfilled his purpose, he solved the problems for all humanity. And so he called us to live out our purpose. And then when we live out our purpose, it actually starts to solve the problems in our culture. But part of the reason why our culture is going the way it's going and where it's going is because we're steering in the wrong direction and not living out our purpose. And when we start to live out our purpose, God's going to start solving problems in our culture because he'll do for us what we can't do for ourselves, but he won't do for us what he invites us to do. Somebody's got to praise God for that because that's, that's actually really true and important stuff. Okay. Now... Um, Pastor Jerry asked me to talk about some of the practical things that we're learning, and we're so far away from where we need to be, but God's helping us kind of learn some things. And, and I wanted to just talk about a few of um, the mistakes we were making uh, and that we're trying to correct so that you can learn from them. Because how many know it's smart to learn from your own mistakes, but it's smarter to learn from someone else's mistakes, right? And so let me just tell you some of the mistakes we were making. Uh, and how we're trying to correct them. What we, were, what we were doing in terms of leadership development and discipleship development is, is we were thinking too singularly. So let me explain. We challenge this now with a concept called think for. 
And I get it from this verse, Paul to Timothy, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Think four. So you've got Paul, who's passed truths on to Timothy, and you've got Timothy, who's passing it on to others, who are passing it on to others. This is true discipleship, disciple leadership development. Discipleship is not just about yourself. It starts with yourself and being a discipled leader, which we talked about Friday night. But then it's about you're not really a disciple unless you're making a disciple. So Paul made Timothy a disciple. But it doesn't just end there. Because if it ends there, then it doesn't continue to, to go on. So really it's about not just being a disciple or knowing how to make a disciple, but training people how to, make a, how to make disciples. So the old Maimonides quote, if you give a person a fish, they eat for a day. If you teach a person a fish, they eat for a lifetime. But I add to that. If you give a person a fish, they eat for a day. If you teach a person a fish, they eat for a lifetime. If you teach a person how to teach a person to fish, you can feed a nation. So in the leadership discipleship context, if you give someone an opportunity to lead, they can lead in a moment. If you teach someone how to lead, they can lead in many moments. But if you teach someone how to teach someone to lead, you can change the nation. So this is about thinking for. This is about pushing ourselves to think beyond ourselves and even beyond the next person, but the next person and the next person so that we can learn how to push discipleship and ministry further. Now, let me, let me tell you a personal story about how um, I kind of stumbled onto some of this and I realized something. I think we have a tendency to not release ministry as quickly as we uh, probably should. So uh, my wife uh, loves me so much. She actually, about six years ago, she, I love to golf and she bought me an indoor golf membership for the winter. And it's a fantastic Christmas gift, uh, ladies in the house, for your husband. So uh, I, I would love to do this. And in, in the winter, I would go to the, this indoor range and I would you know, keep my, my swing good for the winter. And one day I went there and I was the only one in the academy that day. It was kind of an odd time to be there. And I was working with this thing called a flight scope and I wanted to ask some questions. So I went and asked the person who was there. It happened to be the owner of the academy. And I had never met him before, and he comes over, so he helps me some stuff with my swing. And then we got just talking about different things. I asked him, how did you start doing this? How did you open the academy? He's a golf teaching professional, and, and it was kind of a new venture that he was starting, and he normally had other people there. He just so happened to be there that day. And uh, you know, how many know there's no coincidences, right? And so I started talking about his life, and he started asking questions about mine. And we ended up, the whole time I was gonna be there, uh, you know, hitting balls, he act, we actually just chatted. And so at the end, he says to me, you know, I, I really think I'd like to get together with you. Can we get together sometime? Can we, can we exchange information? So I, yeah, for sure. I give him my, my stuff and so then I leave. The next night, he calls my phone and he's, he's desperate. He's beside himself. He says, I, I, my world is falling apart. I didn't know who to call. This guy, 
is connected to so many people. You can't even imagine how many people he's connected to. And for some reason, he called me, and we had just met the day before. So he says, can you come to the academy? It's 9 o'clock at night, and I think it's a Saturday night, and, and I'm kind of winding down, getting ready for Sunday, and I look at my wife. I'm like, you know what? This guy's calling. I, I got to go. It's kind of like picturing, picking up the hitchhiker. You know, I was like... I, I don't know this guy. I actually said to her, if I'm not back by midnight, you probably got to call the police because I don't, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to go meet this guy. So we go to the academy. It's all shut down. It's just him and I there. And he starts pouring out his heart to me. He starts telling me about all the decisions that he's made, and it's all kind of blowing up in his face. So I'm just caring for him and listening to him the best I can, trying to help him uh, through this time. And, and at the end, I thought, okay, I'm going to tell him, you know, I'm going to try to you know, talked to him about Jesus. And at the very end, I just said, you know, I believe in God and, and I believe in prayer. I just wonder if I can pray for you. And he said, yeah, okay. So I prayed for him and I gave it everything I got. Like I prayed my best prayer I could possibly pray for this guy. And I was picturing while I was praying that when I said amen, he was going to have tears running down his cheeks and he was going to fall and he was going to accept Jesus. And at the end, I said amen. He goes, okay. That was his response. Just Oh, okay, okay. That was, you know, I was like, oh, that wasn't how I thought it was going to go. And so I leave and I think maybe I blew it, maybe I missed or whatever. So I just stayed connected with this guy. And over the next three weeks, I just checked in with him, supported him, encouraged him, you know, just walked along with him, told him I was praying for him and so on. And then I decided at the end of three weeks to invite him to church. And I said, hey, I'll go to church. I'd love for you to come to church. He said, oh, I don't go to church. No way. He said, I went to church till I was five years old and I, you know, I can't go there. I said, why not? He goes, ah, it's not my, not my thing. It's not for me. I just, I, I'd, I'd really love for you to come. I think it'd be great. He goes, nah, you know, it's not my thing. I said, what do you think church is like? He goes, like, like the movies. I said, yeah, our church is not like, like the movies. Like, like, come and meet with me. And so he says, I don't know. I, what are people going to think? And I had told him I'm a pastor at this point. Said, what are people going to think? I said, you can sit with me. He goes, what are people going to think? I said, they're going to think you're my friend. I do it all the time. So, you know, or a guest speaker or something like that, right? So just... <laughs> come and sit with me. And so I didn't think he was going to come, but he showed up. He showed up and I, I, like, I, was, I was amazed. And so he sits with me and we sit down the front, kind of like over here, you know. And while we're in the midst of worship, he's like, yeah, this is not like, this is not boring. This is like, cool. This is great. And so after, you know, worship's done, I said, okay, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to talk for a little bit and then I'm going to come back. He goes, okay. So he sits down, and I go up, and I preach. And at the end of preaching, I give an opportunity for people to make a decision to follow Jesus every single message that I preach in our church. And so I did that, and he raised his hand. So I'm like jacked, you know, but I don't know if he really understands what he's doing. So after, I come back down, and I say, Dougie, do you know what you just did? And he said to me, I think so. And I go, well, can you tell me what did you just do? He goes, I think... Jesus just gave me an opportunity to start again. Right? And so I'm like, that's exactly what Dougie, and he started talking to me about stuff that he couldn't have known on his own. Like he hadn't read the Bible. He starts telling me things about how he's feeling and what's going on. And I'm like, dude, that's the spirit of God revealing to you the truth. It was so cool, but it gets better. So this was, this was Palm Sunday. This was a week leading up to Easter. And so I said to him that week, hey, Dougie, come to church on Friday. 
He goes, you guys go to church on Friday too? I'm like, yeah, once a year we go to church on Friday. Come to church on Friday. Okay. So he comes to church and we actually had Rich James was our, our guest speaker on that Friday. And here's a cool, cool thing. So Rich preaches, and then at the end of the message, I uh, went up to do communion. And in communion, we had people tell one another, before we had communion, tell one another what Jesus means to you and what's happening in your life. And so Rich James shared the first communion with Dougie that he was able to have, and he was able to tell him his testimony and what's going on. So why, why am I telling you all this? Because I kept working on, with Dougie and walking along with him, and it was challenging. And, and so here we are, we're walking along the, the golf course, we're three years into this relationship, we're walking along, and all of a sudden I realize, God speak to me, I haven't challenged him to make a disciple yet. I, I made a mistake. I took way too long. Like I, I, I should have said to him earlier, okay, Dougie, you need to start making disciples. We, don't, we just don't have that challenging conversation with people very often, right? So I'm feeling like God tell me to do this. And I, to be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't obey right away. You know, I waited until we were most of the way through the round. until I said, okay, Dougie, it's time for you to do with somebody else what I did with you. He goes, what do you mean? I said, you, you got to make a disciple. You got to start walking with people, you know. And he goes, I can't do with somebody else what you did with me. I don't know all about scripture. I don't know all this stuff. I can't, I can't do it. I said, God doesn't want you to do it like I've done it. He wants you to do it like you will do it. Because he's called you to do this. It's just going to be different than me. He goes, well, who do I do that with? I said, I don't know. God will show you, but you got to start praying about it and have your eyes open because God's going to bring you somebody. Two months later, I get a call from Doug. Doug says, Kev, I think I got the guy. <laughs> I, this guy didn't even have a clue what's coming at him, you know. He goes, I think I got the guy. I go, why? He says, this is another golf pro, and he's having a really hard time. He's lost his job, and his marriage is breaking up. And he, for some reason, called me. I said, why did he call you? He said, I have no idea. I said, okay, that's probably a good clue. He said, what do I do? I said, go out for coffee with him. What do I talk about? I said, tell him your story. Just tell him what God has done in here. So he goes, okay. So they go out for coffee. He calls me after coffee. He says, Kev, It worked. I go, what do you mean it worked? He goes, he's coming to church on Sunday. Doug did better than I did. <laughs> it took me a lot longer to get the courage. He was like, man, this thing's changed my life. You need to come to church. The guy came to church that Sunday. And since that time, uh, he's only missed church. This guy had no church background, was not going to church at all. I think he's only missed church to go on vacation. Other than that, he's locked in. His family came. I mean, it's, it's transformed his life. And he actually, his life started to incredibly turn around. He just got an incredible award from the Professional Golf Association just a couple of weeks ago. God's transformed him, and he's standing up there, and he's thanking Doug publicly in front of all the golf professionals just two weeks ago, thanking Doug in tears for transforming his life and helping him. And he's talking on social media about God, and he's posted things about the church. Here's the point. Here's the point. I, I think that could have happened sooner that we just need to be courageous enough to say something. And they won't say yes every time. I got so many other friends who don't know Jesus that I hang with, and I've invited them to go to church, and I'm getting the, you know, the strong arm all the time. It'll come eventually, but I'm, I'm not saying it's going to happen to you quickly, but I'm saying I need to be obedient. That's the point. The results are up to God. 
But I need to be obedient. I need to ask the question. I need to encourage. I need to inspire. I need to make disciples. And as you make disciples, other people make disciples. That's how it works. You know, I was challenged last week at our Western Ontario District Conference. There was this, the guest speaker named Micah Fries, and he, um, he said that his mentor challenges him to disciple three people a year. And he said, and he did the math, he said, if, if, if I disciple three people a year and then challenge those p- three people to disciple three people the next year and so on, we can disciple the entire population of the planet in 21 years. If we just, three, everybody did three people in one year and everybody, I mean, I, I don't, wouldn't that be amazing? Do we dare to dream again? Do we dare to ask God to do immeasurably above all we could ask or imagine? If the Lord doesn't come back by 21 years, could we imagine that somehow everybody in the planet has had an opportunity to be discipled by Jesus? Like, that would be amazing. But I can't manage those results, and those results aren't up to you. Here's what our responsibility is, just to do ours. And to keep encouraging the people that we walk with that they're a disciple to make a disciple. What we were making the mistake of is we were challenging people to raise up disciple leaders. Here's, here's what leadership was for us. Here's what, a good leader, here's what a good leader was for us. Maybe some of you will relate. A really good leader was somebody who said they'd show up when they were scheduled and they showed up, right? Like we were like, good leader, oh, good leader. They show up, they don't cancel at the last minute. Good leader, we're thankful for them. They even showed up early. Like, whoo, man, everybody's like piranhas after that one person who shows up when they should, right? I gotta challenge us all, leadership placement is not leader development. Just putting people in a spot or in a position does not mean you're developing them. We were making that mistake all the time. We thought just putting people in spots was leadership development. That's not leadership development. These are the gifts Christ given to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. The responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So we needed to work hard to do leadership development, not just leadership placement. I'm going to move quickly. This is just an example of our leadership development pathway. You don't need to do this, but I'm only bringing this up so you can see how we realized that what we weren't doing well is our directors are like our pastoral team or our pastoral development people. And what they were doing is they were living down on the team member side of things way too often. So our team members are like our volunteers. Team members, their primary thing they're thinking is do. And they're, all their development is all about leading self. And then our team leaders think do and delegate. So they are doing some things, but they're learning some other leadership acumen and some skills. And they help lead and mentor and apprentice the team members. And then our coaches are thinking delegate and develop. We didn't have any coaches before. They think delegate and develop, so they're not thinking do. It's not that they don't do things, but that they're releasing and passing that leadership development onto other people. One of the things that happens, I've noticed in the church, is we find it really difficult to give away ministry because they won't do it exactly like we will. 
And sometimes it's, it's actually pride because we want the pat on the back when things go good. And we've got to be willing to be humble enough to give ministry away to people and empower them. That's the only way that the church is actually going to function and grow. And so then our directors develop and dream. And then constantly, we want innovation, constantly dreaming and believing about what God could do. And the network leader, which is me, which is dream and drive network leader, because our vision is inspiring generations of Christ followers to multiply living churches worldwide. We've got this dream. We believe that God's going to help us do that. And so so I only I show that to say how we've got, now, it doesn't mean that everybody is going to go through this and become a network leader. That's not the point. Every, some people will just be the best team member that they could possibly be, but we want to develop people in order to do that. And we recognize we've got to create this space. We've got to empower ministry. We've got to release people to do this. And here's what so often happens. We disqualify other people because we either don't think that they're good enough or they won't cut it or they can't do it the way that we think they will, or we disqualify ourselves. We think I'm just, I'm just a volunteer. I'm just a sound person. I'm just a youth leader. I'm just a person who pours coffee. I'm just a greeter. You aren't just anything. If you're doing anything in the church, you are part of the life change process that God has for you. You aren't just anything. God wants you and has called you and has anointed you and gifted you to empower people and strengthen people and speak into people's lives and shape them and help them learn and learn together. God has called you to build his church in whatever area of ministry that you're involved in. And he wants you to have the confidence to be able to do that. Now, as I say that, I think this is something else that's really important to understand. God doesn't need you. You say, well, hold on. The whole thing we're talking about is all the stuff I need to do and how I need it. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need us. Acts 17 says, God has no needs and human hands can't serve his needs. God doesn't need us to serve the church. He doesn't need us to serve other people. He doesn't need us to serve him. God does not need anything. We got a problem if God has needs. God is all sufficient. Yes? Can I get an amen to that? God is all sufficient, all knowing. God doesn't need anything. So then why does he have us serve him? And why does he have us serve the church? And why does he have us make disciples? I'll tell you why. Because we need it. Why does God call us? Because it's the best thing for us. And here's what we have to become convinced of. We have to become convinced that the best thing for your leaders is to serve the church. The best thing for people in our community is to serve God. The best thing for everyone is to serve other people. And I think sometimes we get so apologetic when we're asking somebody to serve or be involved in this. We're like, do you think maybe you can kind of sort of spend like half an hour in the nursery once every three months? Because we're afraid they're going to say no and we're not going to get anybody. We become so convinced that the best thing for them is to partner with God's purposes for them, serving him, serving the church, and serving other people. And when we do that, they're going to start living their purpose, being fulfilled, and they're going to start making disciples and making leaders who make disciples. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others do it with all the strength that God supplies then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ, all glory, power to him forever and ever. 
Amen. Everything you do, you can do with the power of the Spirit of God in you for the glory of God. See, the, I think it's time that the, the church, especially the Pentecostal church, we determine that our distinctive is not tongues. Our distinctive is not tongues. You can speak in tongues until you're blue in the face, but if you don't speak with the same tongue somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ and make disciples, you are not filled with the Spirit. Our distinctive is not tongues. The empowerment of the Spirit is not just empowerment to witness. It's empowerment to make disciples. And so we need the empowerment of the Spirit. And I speak in tongues a lot, but we need to do that and put it in its right place. Our distinctive is not tongues. Our distinctive is fulfilling our purpose to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples that will change this world. Can I get an amen to that? That's what God has called us to do. So I just want to invite us to dream again. To dream and believe what God can do in you and what God will do through you. God who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I'd like us all to stand, the worship team to come back real quick. And here's what I feel like the Lord uh, calling us to do just as we kind of wrap this up. And, and, and what I, I want to... Um, just have us take a few moments to do is pray together as a team. Whoever you're here with to get together in your group and as soon as the worship team starts to play, have you moved? This isn't the thing that Jer was talking about after the session's done. This, this, God had put this on my heart for us to do to pray and really imagine and dream together as a team. So it's not just you thinking about it, but you speak together and pray together and hear one another pray these dreams and imagine all the things that God can do in you and in your team and in your community and around you. And I believe that as we do that, God will just unlock faith and vision so we will be able to see in the midst of the challenges you might be in, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the thing that you're struggling with, that you praise God now in advance for what you believe that he's going to do. So let me just pray real quick, and then I'm going to encourage you to get into your teams and have this uh, prayer time together, okay? So Lord, we're just humbled and thankful for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Lord, it's an amazing thing that you have saved us and that you have called us and we desire, Lord, to see ourselves the way you see us, to see our church the way that you see it, to see our communities the way that you see them, with grace and love and all the purpose and potential you have. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us? Would you speak to us by your spirit, this faith and vision to dream, and be willing to serve you in sacrifice in order for that dream to be fulfilled so you receive all the glory, all the praise, and all the honor forever and ever. Amen.